0: As we begin in this, I want to kind of prime the pump by talking about like the word providence. For just looking at the makeup of the word, you have pro prefix for uh, first and video, vision. So you have like a first vision or a foreseeing. And the idea being, that God sees what we need before we know it and has already provided for it. It's kind of the idea with this word. And we see this directly stated in a few scriptures. Um, Perhaps the one that might come to your mind most readily is Matthew 5. And we read in verses 43 through 45, "...you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we see in God's providence, he provides good things for everybody. In fact, everything we have is, that is good, we should be thanking God for. Psalm and was pointing this out to me. You see this very directly at the end of Psalm 136. This is the one that, Repeats for his steadfast love endures forever between every line. You get to the end of the psalm, Psalm 136. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, God's providence, provides for all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then you get. I, This is a repetition of verse 1, but it seems especially fitting after reflecting on food being given to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. And so a a response is to give thanks to the God who does provide all that we have. So we see the Scriptures affirm that God provides for all creation those who are elect, whether they're saved in this time or not. He provides for his elect. He he provides for the reprobate, those that will never be saved. He provides good things for all of them in this life. And these paragraphs kind of work on some of these ideas. So paragraph 5 of chapter 5 of our Confession. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifest temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends." so that whatsoever befalls any of His elect is by His appointment for His glory and their good. And these are words that I think especially in our time and culture are hard to hear because we have this impulse to want to separate hard things that happen to us from God's activity as if we want to save God from being responsible for the difficult things that happen upon us. But I think in the broader scope of human history, these words are not going to be necessarily hard to hear. They're going to be more of a comfort. And I think they're intended to be a comfort. Um, The real beauty of this is that every single thing that happens to you, is from the hand of, as we read in paragraph one, the good creator. Everything that happens will be made into our good, for our good. Now, we want to be careful here. This doesn't mean that everything that happens is good in a plain, flat sense. We're not not denying that family being killed in a violent way or whatever, that this is... We're not saying that's good. This is still evil. And these things are still done by wicked men. But God works all things that happen in our lives for our good. And you can hear that language coming explicitly from Romans 8. This is going to be... Romans 8.28 is going to be a big verse for our entire understanding of God's providence. But I I itemized some of the things that this paragraph says. So um, using some of the semicolons, we see that God... Um, I'm trying to get the exact language. He does leave his own children to manifold temptations and corruptions of their own hearts. And then there's multiple reasons that are given for this. So, to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. Are there any... Biblical examples that come to mind with this. I'll give you one idea that I heard Chad Bird talking about this week. um, Looking at the life of Jacob. And the, the rabbis comment on a hypothetical conversation between Leah and Jacob after their wedding. And as if Jacob would say to Leah, how could you deceive me like this? How could you possibly have let all, the whole wedding night happen and not say anything to me? And the hypothetical response is, oh, you mean like you deceived your brother Esau? And I think we need to be careful along this line of thinking, but we can see I think even in our own experience, sometimes we do experience sins that we have committed upon others. And there are, I think, helpful things that can come from this. It can help us to understand, to a greater degree, the pain that we've caused others. Maybe drive us to maybe more explicitly repent of things that we've done to others. To recognize how wicked we have been. Are there any examples that might come to your mind? Along these lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Babylonians come and ask to see all of his his households and treasures. Yeah. In, in his pride, he shows them, and it says in Second Chronicles thirty two thirty one, um, it says, "Who so had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land? God left him to himself mm-hmm. in order to test him to know all that was in his heart." Right. And I think it was last week we. We're talking about testing, and how, if, if it wasn't last week, we'll just say it again. When God tests us, it's not as though God's seeking information He doesn't have. God's testing us for our own benefit, that we might see what's going on in our own hearts. I'm remembering now. It's uh, with the death of Elisha. Um, if you remember, he tested. Was it Joram? Um, shoot these arrows for the destruction of, the, of Hazael and the Syrian army. And the test is not so that God's going to see how, to what extent am I going to wipe out the Syrians? I don't know yet. Let's see what the king shoots. It's so that, so that uh, the king might see, made, laid bare, made obvious, what is the state of my heart? With Adam and Eve in the garden, God's asking questions. Where are you? Who, who told you that you're naked? He's not seeking information. By forcing you to say these things out loud, you come to the unavoidable conclusion there's something wrong here. And I can see it now, it's out in the open. So I think we can see similar things with other tests in Scripture. kind of like the whole church discipline thing? Like turning over to Satan? Is that kind of the same principle as this? I don't know if I understand the connection you're seeing. Or to discover unto them the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. Yes, I mean, church discipline certainly does that. And that's our hope, is that they would see that and repent. And we, I think I'm done. But I think you're right. I think there is a connection there. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And so that the younger generation would repent and avoid the fate of the older generation. Their fate was sealed. They were told, you're going to wander until you die. But the younger generation was supposed to see this and change, repent, repent. time believe for a season, his own children. Yes. And so this is, um, I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand whether or not like Paul would be an example of this, because Paul wouldn't have been a believer when he was humbled, right? Like he was seeking out to destroy God's church, but then the, the mass is him, him, right? Well... I think that can be included because I meaning in God's decree, we are his children and he'll carry out in time our salvation. But you can also look at the thorn in the flesh that Paul had, that that was given explicitly to humble him. And we're going to look at that later. So you see that as well. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that statement is somehow distinguished between the different provinces of God or if it's more generally to say all the providences of God are good and perfect to the children. My first, th- my first thought would be that all the good things that you enjoy, you need to understand they come from God. And I don't know. Yes, that's true. And um. it Mm-hmm. Are good. Yes. Even bad are good, yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I, I guess I'm, just my question is do we read James as distinguishing between good things and bad things, or more about in all things there are good things? I haven't considered whether that, what he means explicitly by that language, if he's making a distinction between the different kinds of providences of God. So I don't know if I'd feel comfortable answering that right now. But he might be. I don't know. Um, I do want to look at Hebrews 12 before we move on from this point. Wow, time's going real quick. Um, <laughs> um, Hebrews 12, starting verse 3. but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think we see much of what we're looking at in this point in the paragraph in this language. That God gives us trials, God gives us hard things for our good and because He loves us. We can, sure, we can consider a fatherly displeasure because of our sin, but at the same time, It helps with this language to see that even the hard things that come to God's people come from a God who does love his people it's not a uh, lashing out angrily how dare you do that like whammo it's more there there needs to be correction and this is the way that it's going to happen this is the way things are going to be done we got to keep moving um and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself in the confession. And I think there's many scriptural examples that come to mind. Um, Some that come to my mind, um, Israel losing the ark, they they were not depending upon him. They were using the ark as a a holy trinket that was supposed to grant them victory in battle. And them losing the ark was a trial that was meant to bring them into more humble dependence upon the Lord and not on these objects, these holy objects. David's census, I think, could also be seen very similarly. David's getting puffed up and thinking, I'm going to just see how many soldiers I really have, get an idea of how strong I really am. And the Lord humbles him to bring him into a more humble dependence upon him. This is where we can look at 2 Corinthians 12 and see Paul's thorn in the flesh. Because the language is pretty explicit. 2 Corinthians 12. I'll start in verse 7. So to keep me, Paul, from being becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And here, this is as direct as we could get to find the language that we're using in the Confession. The confession goes on, and to make them more watchful against all future occasion of sin and for other just and holy ends. And there's all kinds of places we could go to. The whole book of Job deals with much of this. I want to look at a few psalms. Psalm 73. And you might know this is the perhaps the most well known Psalm with a lament over the prosperity of the wicked. But we're looking at the end of the psalm. Starting in verse 23. After he laments over the prosperity of the wicked, and then he sees the end of the wicked, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And so we see after he laments over the prosperity of the wicked and he sees their end, he's not tempted to join the wicked to try and join in their prosperity, but rather is content with what he has, content to be with the Lord and serve him faithfully even now in this life. And Psalm 119, this is a really striking few verses. Psalm 119, verse 65, we're going to start verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the affliction helps him to be more faithful. The chastisement if we use Hebrews 12 language. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. And here's the verse, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And it's hard to imagine someone that's been absolutely crushed by the trials of this life being able to say this, but this is, this is what the psalmist is able to say, and this is what we hope by God's grace to be able to say in our own trials. And we recognize the Lord's goodness in working these things for our sanctification, for our holiness, for His glory. That In the confession, so that whatsoever befalls His elect by His appointment for His glory And they're good. And I'm going to go to Romans 8 prior to what we've already referenced. I think it's only with this understanding that Paul can say what he says in 18 through 25. have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this we hope in this hope we were saved now hope that is not seen or that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience with an understanding of God's providence working all things for our good we can look forward to what's to come content in the time now, because God's working all things to this end. This is the end for which everything's being too. So, we have considered God's providence with a sinful world and sin in the world for God's people. Now we look at paragraph 6 to consider it in the case of the wicked. As for those wicked and ungodly men from whom God... Those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as the righteous judge, for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. So, perhaps perhaps the hardest part is the second point. For them, he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts. So, we might ask ourselves, is this just cruel language that we as Reformed folks use because... Uh, I don't know. We hate free will. We, I don't know. Where do we get this language in Scripture is what I'm getting at. (laughs) Because this does come from Scripture multiple places. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Why have you made me like this? Yeah. Yeah, you got Romans 9. Right. And it's certainly where this is certainly the probably the strongest text on this point. Um, but I'm thinking of a few others, especially with the language of, "They might have been enlightened in their understanding, but something's withheld from them. God's grace is withheld from them." There's two particular passages that say this verbatim. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So, 13. That's what I have anyway. Matthew 13, um, verses 10 through 17. We have the purpose that Jesus speaks in parables. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And you can find a lot of the themes of this paragraph in that verse as well. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, is fulfilled. And this is the other passage, uh, Isaiah. Um, it's fulfilled that says, and did not hear it. And the language is difficult for us because what you get is an intentional blinding of the wicked, and the language says, lest they would turn and repent. And the only way we can understand this is to understand what we've looked at multiple times, and I especially like the confession, paragraph 2, chapter 2, and it's more about the doctrine of God, but at the end of it, to him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. We'll, we'll say more about this, but try to keep moving. But sometimes also he withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and Matthew 13:12 is referenced for this we just saw that. Um, Deuteronomy 230 is another reference that's given. And talks about I think one of the enemies of Israel not letting them pass because they're hardened. But Sihon King of Heshbon would not let them pass, but the Lord your God hardened his spirit, made him obstinate, that he might not give that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God uses for softening others. This language of giving over, where do we find that in Scripture? Romans 1 is probably going to be the first place we all think of, and for good reason. Romans 1, starting verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And just pausing here, Paul is saying because of the natural world, man knows enough about God to be without excuse. And a lot of this is God's providence, right? The rain that falls that provides for you, the crops that grow that provide for you, the animals that you hunt that provide for you. In other words, we could say, because of God's providence, you ought to, give, you ought to worship God, but instead you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They didn't give thanks to the God who gave them every good thing that they had. And so they're judged for it. They claimed to be wise and became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Here we have that creature, creator-creature distinction we've talked about before. Who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You see this language of giving up over and over again. God giving them up to their wicked ways. And talk about church discipline. The the negative side of church discipline can also be seen in this. Um, We can go to 2 Corinthians 5. Or no, 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we do it hoping they repent. But if they don't repent, this is another giving over. They're given over in to the one to whom they truly belong. We do so hoping that they do repent and are brought back. And I think 1 Timothy and 2 Thessalonians 2, I think they use the same kind of language. When we consider this kind of language in general in the paragraph, very difficult, our culture likes to ask questions like why do bad things happen to good people? And other evangelicals might ask his question, like, why would God save some and not others? As, if what, as if, what we, if what we believe about God is true, then he's unjust. And if this paragraph is true, if these paragraphs are true, then God is unjust. And I think the only way, maybe not the only way, the way that I try to really center myself here is to understand what the Bible says about humanity and to see that put out plainly. When you look at Genesis 6, 5, and Genesis 8, 21, before and after the flood, it says about man that every imagination of man's heart is wicked from his youth. Every imagination of man's heart is wicked from his youth. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about how before we were brought into Christ, we were enemies of God. Haters of God, dead in our sins. Romans 3, 9 through 18, very powerfully assaults us with a description of the natural state of man. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you ask the question, what should God do to a people like this? Destroy us. Judge us pour his wrath upon us. And so, the question is not why do bad things happen to good people, it's why do good things happen at all. And it's not why does God save some and not others, it's why would God save any of us. And I think if we can begin to think this way, then we can be in a better position to accept what the Bible says about His sovereignty over all things, including for the destruction of the wicked. Yeah. Yes. Right. 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 Yes. Like like in Hosea the image of a prostitute who just longs to be on the street. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right, but more so giving over. It's when he takes them, it's kicking and screaming. Right? Yes. So, the last paragraph. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. So, to this point, it might have been more helpful to think individually God works individual trials into the individual Christian for the individual Christian's good. But here is a statement explicitly of God working things for the good of his people collectively. And I want to look at Genesis 50:20 because we I think often only read half of this verse and it's amazing even the half of this verse that we read. But It's more collective and communal than I think we memorize it as. Uh, Genesis 50, 20 says, As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And we often stop there, because, I mean, that's wonderful enough, right? (laughs) That Joseph's wicked brothers and their designs against him, God meant their evil for his good, but the verse doesn't stop there. To bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. And so this good is not just for Joseph's benefit. And it would have been wonderful enough if it was. But it's for the benefit of all of God's people. In a sense, Joseph is a savior of the world. God used Joseph to provide food for all the people in the world at that time that needed food during this intense famine. And through this good to Joseph individually, God is also providing for the good of the church. And your mind should be racing to Christ as you think about this. That the wicked men against Christ God meant for Christ's individual good and also that many should be kept alive as they are today. And when we consider this, God's providence through all of redemptive history to bring about the life of many people, the life of Christ's people, just glancing at Matthew 1 and the genealogy in Matthew 1. You get a trip down memory lane for all the things that happened in the Old Testament. And for those of us coming to Wednesday nights, you can even recognize a lot of the kings that are listed here. And we know that there's some good things that happen. There's a lot of bad things that happen. A lot of really terrible things that happened. And as you're looking through this list, I think we should keep in the back of our minds Genesis 50:20 That the evil of the wicked meant against God's people. God meant for their good. And not just to bless them individually, but to give life to God's people. We consider the evil meant against Christ by the devil, through the Pharisees, through Herod, through Pilate, and Judas. God worked all these things in his providence. We see the language explicitly of Judas that he was decreed to be the one to betray Christ before the foundations of the world. And this is good for Christ, for the good of Christ, because he obtains a bride, he obtains a people for himself and it's meant for the good of his people that we get life. So this is, of course, the pinnacle of this doctrine. But we understand this on a smaller level, too. In our individual lives, the trials that we experience are not just for our good, but also for the benefit of others around us. The trials that I experience and grow from, by God's grace, are a benefit to you. And the trials that you experience and grow in, in sanctification, by God's grace, are not just good for you, but also good for all of us. So, we are like out of time. So, (laughs) Um, we can talk more about it later, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would revel, revel in the divine providence that we've been studying. We would revel in our God that we worship that is meticulously... Sovereign over all things. And far from being a a tyrannical big brother or any kind of stereotypical totalitarian government, you don't meticulously order all things for your good and the detriment of all others outside of yourself, but you meticulously order it for our good, your people's good, and for your glory. And I pray that this would be the lens through which we view all that happens. That though the wicked do mean it for evil, You mean it for our good. And to bring about the life of many as it is to this day. Lord, we love You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.